0: Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Welcome to SACPA. And uh, my name is Ted Ted Mitsui, and I'm the moderator today. Uh, Before I say anything, please do not forget two things. Turn off your cell phone. Pay up. $10 in the basket on a, at each not, table. Not
1: necessarily in
0: that order. <laughs> Except the speaker. He gets a free lunch. Uh, Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs is a non-profit volunteer organization uh, financed by your membership, donation, as well as some profit from the $10 you pay for the lunch. And also uh, I wish to thank on behalf of SACPA, University of Lethbridge that provides uh, help in public relations and some donations, as well as the country uh, kitchen catering which provides excellent lunch as well as other media such as Shaw TV, which you will watch again, if you like, on Sunday afternoon, 4.30, is that? 4.30, on Shaw TV, as well as uh, other media like lesbridge Held and other media which covers this event quite well. And I'd like to thank them for their cooperation. Now, uh, Occupy... Movement took me a great surprise. I just ran into them in New York when I was looking for a good place to eat. And uh, I thought that the Wall Street area might be a good place to find a good uh, restaurant. And I ran into this group of people who were occupying a public square. And I just wondered why four helicopters were hovering on top of Manhattan Island all day long. And uh, uh, this uh, group of people in the square in, in front of a Wall Street was very peaceful. I ate free meals for two days. I didn't require any payment etc it was a very curious event and I'm glad that our popular speaker Trevor Harrison is here to explain to us to us what this is all about and of course uh, Trevor is not a stranger for us he is frequent speaker at this forum here he's a professor of sociology specializing in political sociology as well as associate director of Prentice Institute as well as co-director of Parkland Institute. And uh, I don't think we, I should go any further wasting his time. So I'd like to call on Trevor to explain to us what this is all about.
1: Well, I uh, thank you for uh, having me here uh, today. This, this is a wonderful crowd. I'm so glad that uh, you could... I'll come out to this that you weren't preoccupied, Um, if I can put it that way. Cheesy joke, I know. Sorry. I I, I promise I won't do that again. Um, Well, you know... I have to say, uh, explain what Occupy is about. I, I've been giving myself, a, doing a lot of th- things the last while, and I'm not sure I am going to come up with any you know, really firm answers for you, but I think it's a chance to really open up a kind of dialogue about the Occupy movement. Um, when asked, you know, I think of the Occupy movement when I first began to really conceptualize this talk, and I... A, uh, a quote came back to me uh, you know, that I managed to pull out of Google. I, you know, when asked about the historical effect of the French Revolution, the Chinese statesman Chow and Lai is said to have replied, it's too soon to, t- to say. Uh, you know, well, I, in some ways, I think it'll be the same thing in terms of the Occupy movements. Uh, you know, we, we may not actually know what the effect was uh, for some years even down the road. Um, we... Uh, and including here the the media the politicians, academics, the citizens at large are noticing uh, that something is happening, but what all we know that is that, in the words of a famous protest song of another era that I occasionally still actually play on my cd player there 's something happening here, what it is ain 't exactly clear, uh, and I think that 's the reactional of a uh, of a lot of people certainly they're uh, the the Occupy movement gets, uh, you know, accolades and uh, and uh, support from a number of quarters and, and in fact, uh, fairly substantial in some polls. And then there's other people who want to reject the movement out of hand as a bunch of uh, lazy kids who, you know, live in their parents' basement and, you know, have nothing better to do. Or, as I think it was Newt Gingrich said the other day, uh, get a haircut and get a job. Uh, you know, so there's kind of these these polls there, but for a lot of people, I think there's a kind of, uh, you know, what is it? It ain't exactly clear. Uh, and in some sense today, I'm, I, I think it would be too much that I could suspect uh, or expect that I would bring about clarity. Uh, from day to day, as I've watched the Occupy movement, and even within a single A, I have to say, uh, my observations and thoughts have changed. My own sense of footing on this particular topic is uncertain. Which is, uh, you know, I have to say, it's kind of like the shifting ground underneath, like Lethbridge and all the sand here or something. Usually, when I give talks at these things, it's kind of like, yeah, I have a pretty good sense of you know what I'm going to say. A little, little less so, I will confess today. I was, I, uh, in fact, quite fortunate, I think, to listen to uh, two quite impressive young people in Edmonton this past uh, weekend. Uh, Parkland Institute held its uh, uh, annual, 15th annual uh, conference up at the U of A, and uh, it was really outstanding, and I would put out an invite to all of you. uh, Next year, next year's will be even better, so you should come out for that. But uh, we actually invited at somewhat late notice a couple of people from Occupy Edmonton to come out, and... um, what I, I, I'll suggest is that, you know, the, uh, it, it's way too easy sometimes to say, uh, as is, you know, the, the common complaint of older generations for centuries, going back, in fact, to the days of uh, Socrates. That you know, all those young people, you know, they're you know they're apathetic. They don't care. You know, blah blah. The world's going to hell in handbasket, and the young people are to blame for it. Um, but you know, listening to those two young people who came out from Occupy Edmonton uh, really gave me a sense of uh, real hope for the future because uh, both of them were exactly what we always ask of young people to be. Uh, they were engaged. They were thoughtful. They were phenomenally articulate. Uh, They were not uh, there on just kind of a whim. They actually did have a real sense of uh, social justice and a sense of a vision about they want a better world. And after all, that's understandable because they are going to be the ones in large part who are going to have to pick up the pieces uh, that is uh, you know, resulting from uh, the destruction we've seen in the last few years, environmental, economic, and otherwise. So, um, so they helped me actually to understand in a little bit better way, I think, you know, uh, meeting, talking with them, what is actually going on. At the same time, um, what I'm going to tell you today is not terribly uh, conclusive. Uh, But instead, what I'd like to suggest is kind of an invitation to thinking about and an invitation to uh, helping me even understand better uh, what is actually occurring. Um, When I began thinking about what I would say, I thought, okay, well, I need some kind of structure for this. So, uh, well, gee, they asked me what I was going to talk about, so I actually stuck it uh, on the promo there. So there's a number of questions that were actually on the ad, um, can I just push kind of the forward button yeah, here? Is good. that the, the arrows? The arrows. Oh, right here. Perfect. Hey. Okay. Um, so here were the questions that hopefully are the ones that actually dragged you out for for this. Uh, is the occupy movement uh, of is it a movement in the sense of past movements or just a passing uh, phenomenon? Um, I do think it actually uh, shares some similarities with uh, movements in the past. Uh, you know, the, uh, the youth, uh, the, uh, the efforts to, uh, the, the, the basic sense of injustice, which has always been at the heart of every movement, whether you're talking about uh, feminist movements, labor movements, civil rights, whatever, there's, there's that. Um, there is a uh, you know in in some of the media there's a kind of depiction of the uh, of the occupy movement as being kind of faddish that it's just going to disappear. Um, in some sense, there are, all movements kind of do have that kind of quality to it. But what you have to not do is pay attention to the the superficial things. So it would have been very e- easy, for example, the, during the uh, the hippie movements to have concentrated on the kind of elaborate clothing and, you know, borrowed from uh, from the East, you know, the Middle East or, or Asia, uh, or love beads or other kinds of things, and, and to forget there was something else quite often driving the people of that movement as well. So uh, there are, I think, some actually much stronger uh, roots going on there. Um, the... There is a kind of immediate. Uh, many of you are aware of the fact that uh, Adbusters uh, actually ran this ad uh, that um, encouraged people to to turn out on uh, September fifteenth to uh, to occupy Wall Street, which is kind of an interesting way because there had already been building up a lot of uh, sense of injustice about uh, the inequalities in society, but. As I talked about actually at the Parkland conference this past weekend, um, the inequalities, as much as they're unfair, unethical, or whatever, they also contributed to the crisis that we've seen. You know, basically what happened over the last few years, few decades is that as more money went to the top, there was less money for people to actually spend on things. And so we started to issue easier and easier credit. And I think I actually talked about this at a SACPAR talk in the past. So there has been a kind of building sense that something is wrong, and who do you go after? Well, Wall Street is a, is a, a great symbolic um, um, target. And so the sense was uh, you know, that let's go there and actually bring the fight to the people in Wall Street. You know, let's bring it to where the problems actually began. And we could add here Bay Street, and, of course, there's been protests in Toronto as well. Um, so that's in the kind of North American context uh, where it fed off of. Uh, but I think we also have to think that there's something that's actually going on in the world generally. Um, again, at the the Parkland Conference, one of the people we, we actually Skyped in was a, uh, uh, an individual, uh, Ahmad Shakar, who was uh, Skyping in from Cairo. And uh, just behind him, in in the room that he was uh, doing his broadcast from, it was a dark room because you know didn't have uh, great uh, lighting or anything. Uh, but just behind, you could hear the activity going on in the street. And of course, within hours, uh, as we know, the military really cracked down and there's been some people killed and everything. Um, but in some sense, the people in Tahrir Square were also occupying. They were occupying the square. They were actually bringing the, the fight for democracy and justice to, uh, to that uh, square. Um, and the same thing has happened in other places around the world as well. Uh, Syntagma Square in uh, Athens, which is always historically kind of one of the places where people gather when they have a political statement. It's kind of like going to the forum in the old days you know, in, in ancient Greece. And uh, so, uh, you know, same thing has happened there, same thing has happened in Spain. Um, so when the Occupy movement uh, began to take off and targeted uh, Wall Street, at the same time there was kind of models of occupation uh, elsewhere. Um, all of these movements feed off of, again, a sense that something has gone fundamentally wrong here, it seems to me uh certainly the recent economic crisis is itself a real catalyst, and i 'll come back to it in you know, a while here but uh you know the, the striking thing is that the crisis has targeted uh negatively some groups more than others, and we know of course about you know understandably people who are on uh, uh pensions or uh, people who are in uh, uh, Situations where their employment is uh, is precarious, uh, but it's particularly really targeted young people. Uh, and again, uh, as I said, I think they understand very well uh, some of the nature of what's going on. There's also environmental concerns here. You know, the uh, it's it's hard to separate. We cannot separate economic the economic crisis for from the the crisis of the environment that is going on. Our economy is running in such a way that it's not sustainable. You know, life is not sustainable. Uh, anybody who actually studies what is going on in terms of not only just climate change itself but the depreciation of resources, the uh, extinction of various species from, from the very small and microbic to the large knows that something is fundamentally wrong here. Um, Stagnant social mobility. Now, it hasn't, this actually hasn't happened so much in candy yet, although it is, it is creeping. Um, and in that sense, we actually have to understand that the, the, the Occupy movement is not just a homogenous movement. It's, it's a variegated movement, and it has different impulses and rhythms depending on where you go from country to country, from city to city. Uh, in the United States, however, and it's it's really interesting. I when I came back from Edmonton uh, the other day, and I had to go shopping because I realized I had absolutely no cream for my coffee in the morning. And I'm going through Safeway, which would have been a real tragedy, I have to tell you, by the way. So I'm going through Safeway, and uh, and I see a Time magazine. I don't subscribe to it, and I don't often buy it. But the cover, if you've seen it, is about has uh, you know something heading like. Has uh, the age of social mobility come to an end in the United States you know is it is the American dream dead now anybody who studied it knows that that in fact is the case it 's actually been dying for a long time the united states uh, you know to be born poor in the United States is to stay poor you know that 's the way it is to actually on the other hand to be born rich is to stay rich and so the American dream has been dead for a long time anybody who's studied it but it's actually finally, reality has now pierced the image. And so uh, now Time Magazine is actually talking about it. So in the context of restrained, constrained opportunity structures, that also is underlying it. The sense that it doesn't matter what you do, this is a rigged game, right, is I think at the heart of this. There's also, has to be said here, Profound cynicism towards politics and politicians uh, and having – and I again, I believe I spoke at SACPA about this coming back from my time in uh, the United States, the fall of 2010 and being there for the midterm elections – Anybody who actually watches what's going on there, and of course, they once again are having some disputes and crises and manufactured crises in Congress. Anybody who watches the American uh, political system has to be cynical. But then again, look at Greece (laughs) and look at Italy. You know, where now you basically, in Italy, you have an unelected premier with an entirely unelected cabinet. Uh, you know, so democracy is in crisis and people realize they're, they're cynical about their politicians, but I think they're also very concerned about the state of democracy. And then you have the media, which is, you know, would rather concentrate about dancing with the stars or something than talking about real issues. So how, how can you not be cynical about the media who, uh, quite frankly, in the context also of the Occupy movement is, uh, you know, has already designed its frame about how it wants to talk about. Because it. it doesn't know how to think creatively about anything, it just already goes in there with a story and and you know wants everybody to be props in a story that's already written. So you know, so and again, thankfully, I have to say, a lot of citizenry at large, however, actually are becoming or have become at least as cynical about the media as they are about their politicians. And from cynicism always springs hope eternal. Um, so here was a uh, just a wonderful sign. I uh, picked this up in an article the other day. I I, I kind of like that one actually. Um, I did actually write a uh, chapter in a book some years ago that uh, it was called "The uh, The Best Government Money Can Buy." It was about Alberta. It kind of goes along with the same theme here actually. Um, one of the other questions that I uh, you know put in the program is there a connection between the Arab Spring or other protests and Occupy? And I I've already kind of addressed this. Yes and no. I mean, so you, when we look for uh, connections, sometimes we think about, okay, are operatives going out there, or is there money being funneled to, you know, support these things? You know, there's nothing uh, like that. But on kind of some much higher level, there is a uh, there are connections between these. And I, one of the things is, I think this general sense of unfairness. Yeah, it's a there's a um, We think about populist movements as something that actually arose in the uh, late 19th century, and actually the term arose with the American political uh, system in the late 19th century and became very popular, of course, throughout the 20th, and here in in Canada and here also in Alberta. So we're very well uh, aware of the uh, idea of populism. But in fact, before the term was ever uh, coined, uh, you can go back to uh, some of the early kind of peasant movements, in uh, England, various parts of Europe, uh, and uh, at a time when the economy was changing, of course, capitalism—very different capitalism than what we see today—but capitalism, no in any case, was was starting to arise. And there was kind of dislocations in the old economy. People were being moved from town, to, uh, village to you know, or off the land to villages to towns, etc. And one of the things that was was present in all of these uh, debates, these pre-populist populist populist movements was a sense of the moral economy Uh, and it seems to be actually a kind of human trait that we're all born with a sense of what is intrinsically moral uh that when that things are fair or unfair and so i think that uh you know there's a sense of moral outrage that is actually kind of sweeping across across the country call it if you like kind of a uh, a, a spirit that is moving around the world—the zeitgeist, as is, is, is often uh, termed—but but there does seem to be something that is happening out there. Now, uh, one of the things that this is uh, certainly has assisted this is all of these new technologies. Uh, you know, it's it's no surprise that uh, uh, you, you see people in the crowds, and of course, they're all holding up phones and they're they're finding out what's going on elsewhere, and they're talking to friends, and there's the networking through uh, Facebook and all, all other kinds of means. Um, what this means is that uh, not only uh, information about, uh, you know, uh, Sidney Crosby's return to the ice goes viral, uh, but also uh, you know, what's going on in terms of some event in some other place suddenly going viral as well. So we know about these, these uh, things in real time. Um, there is a bit of a problem, I'll just uh, you know, mention this briefly. I was actually at an Am- Amnesty International uh, talk last night, and uh, I was talking about... Uh, there, there was a panel about the Middle East and about Bahrain, but also the just crackdown. And, of course, also the these new technologies have been used uh, against people as well. So, unfortunately, the, the Facebook thing is kind of a double-edged sword, so uh, governments actually use a lot of these technologies to track down as new ways of surveillance to find the people that they want to crack down on. But on the positive side, it's actually allowed for, in some sense, the creation of kind of global movements. And uh, as long as the the anti-globalizers have been uh, around, and it's been a few decades now, one of the ideas has been how do we create a kind of a world movement? Well, in some ways, this is kind of, in its nascent form, the beginnings perhaps of something like that, there's also, I think, some really interesting similarities for with uh, other early uh, movements. Certainly, uh, you know the uh, nonviolence movements uh, that uh, Gandhi uh, launched years ago in India. Uh, you'll notice that, uh, in contrast to the um, sometimes protests do end up being conflictual, and so you have kind of pitted battles. You know, we saw like the battle in Seattle or, you know, we saw things in Quebec City. And often, you know, frankly, I think there's uh, agent provocateurs have been involved in some of these things. But the fact is sometimes the conflicts have become quite real. Um, but it was actually quite noticeable about uh, certainly a lot of the occupy movements in North America, and I'll, I'll set aside here again because there's very specific things have gone on to some extent in the United States, place like Oakland. But it's quite often there's been a fair amount of nonviolence, even in the face of provocation. There is a uh, real similarity here with the uh, civil rights sit-ins. You know, I mean, you occupy schools or you occupy uh, various other places. Um, you know, th- this seems to be sharing some similarities with the similar civil rights movements. There's also a uh, that kind of rejection of uh, corporatism. There's a, uh, a great article. It wasn't... Empirical by any means, but and I forgot to take it out of the Globe and Mail, but it was several days ago. There was someone, uh, I believe, uh, an American, probably writing, uh, coming out of California, and uh, he had obviously been part of the quotes hippie generation, Uh, and he was actually drawing parallels himself in terms of his personal experiences and saying, "Listen, you know, the kids, the young people who are out there." what they're really doing is actually kind of following on what we were trying to do in the 60s and 70s in trying to reject corporatism, what we saw even then as the growing um, uh, uh, intrusion of corporations into day-to-day life and the the spawning of uh, massive uh, individualism and consumerism. So uh, so there are, I think, some similarities there with, with older movements. And there's also some ties to some more recent movements. Uh, you know the anti-globalization WTO protests of the late '90s and uh, early 2000s, which, unfortunately, then the uh, after 9/11, any kind of disputes or arguments with the state, everybody became security conscious. Everybody was you know afraid. You've you've got to be in line. You can't. You've got to conform. No one raises any kind of questions or, or arguments. That got shut down. Okay, but. There was already this kind of anti-globalization. There's something going wrong here, and it, what it is ain't exactly clear, but we want it changed. So that was already happening, and that follows then is followed by the anti-war protests, which in some sense again says there's something wrong here. In this case, what we see is the corporations are going to get rich out of having everybody fight each other, <laughs> and there was a lot of money made out of uh, the war in Iraq and subsequent conflicts. More recently, again, and, and uh, you know, I I, well, I won't say I hate to refer back to it because I'm actually really proud of it. Part of the uh, the Parkland Conference this past weekend, we also had a speaker come up from Wisconsin with the uh, AFL-CIO to talk about what's been going on down there and efforts to shut down the labor movement in that state and other American states, um, One of the things that in Wisconsin happened was, uh, you know, people, and it wasn't only uh, unionized public workers, but eventually also private sector workers as well, joined in support of the union members there. And they actually went into the legislature and they sat down. They took it over. So before there was an Occupy Wall Street uh, movement, uh, workers in uh, Wisconsin went in, and they took over their own legislature. They didn't let the, Republic, the newly elected Republican governor throw them out of there, and they launched a protest about what was happening. Finally, uh, it may surprise some, but uh, you know I think there's also on the level of discontent some similarities with the Tea Party movement. Um irrespective of what we might think of the Tea Party leadership or their prescriptions about how to deal with things, the discontent, the anxiety, the fear is actually very similar. You know, there are different populations. The Tea Party movement is populated with generally somewhat older groups of people, but there is a kind of um, similarity in terms of the anxieties. So. so I'm going to show you a few quick little slides here because a PowerPoint is really boring if you don't have a few pictures. Um, So here's one. Uh, Here's these here. Excuse the bad language. And this one. Uh, Now, actually, and this one right here. So I'm going to back this up for a moment, though. This one is from the Occupy Movement in 2011. This one is from Wall Street in 2008 when the crisis began to hit. And this one, and this one, these are both from the early 2000s. Okay, In terms of thematics... They're virtually kind of the same. So that's why I say you know, it's wrong to think of the Occupy movement as just, okay, it's suddenly here in the last few months. Jeez, you know, how come it happened? Well, the currents have been there for a long time, and they bubble to the surface at various points, and, uh, but they're not going to go away. The currents are going to stay there. Um, this is actually from the article I was mentioning in the Time magazine just the other day, uh, just this quote here. Um, suspicion that the answer is no to is it still land of opportunity inspires not only the Occupy Wall Street protests that have spread across the nation, but also movements as seemingly divergent as the Tea Party, much that I was just talking about here. Who are the occupiers? Um, uh, I would say primarily, though not exclusively, the young and educated. Um, There's a variety of reasons for that. Some people would say, well, they have time on their hands. Well, certainly not... Generally speaking, tied down with uh, with uh, families and um, and jobs that you know you've already invested a certain career in or other kinds of things. But there's also kind of a passion and idealism in youth that uh, that we should encourage. In fact, I think there's nothing more tragic than to see a an apathetic, uh, indifferent, uh, you know, nineteen-year or twenty-year-old. I mean, that that's. You want to become that when you're 80 maybe, you know, and even then I think it's a bad thing. Uh, but you, know, you sure don't want to see that in your youth. So you, know, you want young people are out there actually with a purpose in life. It's, it's young people. When I look at the, the pictures uh, you know, in, in various places, I, I, it is striking the youth. And as I said, it's because they have a vested interest and they see what's going on because they're going to have to pay the cost of the environmental damage and everything else. The unemployment rate in some places for people under 25 is astonishing. In Greece or in Spain, the unemployment rate for people under 25 is in excess of 40%. Um, So no one should tell me those people shouldn't be out there protesting they have a legitimate, that's higher than it was on average during the dirty 30s in most countries around the world, in in industrialized capitalist countries. Um, the In the same in the United States, the rate is probably in around 25%. Um, there's another thing to notice, of course, about the youth movements. They are not uh, like myself and perhaps a number of you, as I shouldn't uh, you know suggest that too hard because maybe if you are perhaps incredibly uh, adept with technologies but youth are particularly adept with technologies and that's why they can use all those phones and they can talk to each other and they can get messages out so again it's understandable that youth would be involved in these um quick quote here from jim stanford who was out with the people in bay street um just supportive of them uh and saying that you know these young people, as I saw this past weekend, really do understand what's going on. They are not dummies. They are not useful idiots. They actually understand how the economy works. Really, really well. That's what has struck me. Um, Jeffrey Sachs, uh, you know, well-known economist as well, uh, you know, also supporting many of the ideals of the uh, the movement. Um, Tactics and strategy, does Occupy have a coherent message? Uh, No, not in the sense of formal demands, although some people within the movement have suggested they realize that at some point they have to do that. One of the things that's happened is this is actually democracy as performance. So we talk about democracy, but we actually don't quite often actually practice it. We don't actually engage in a democratic discussion. This tends to be a kind of a strength for the movement in small groups, but it's also a weakness in terms of Dealing with a wider society who immediately wants kind of a solution to things, um, the uh, um, this also is a problem. Of course, the media doesn't get kind of the nice sound bites, uh, or or things don't fit into the frame. So that's why the media is having a real tough time with the Occupy movement. Going to go uh, if I have, can just borrow a couple more minutes here. I just want to tell a little story here. This is the story of Georgia. Pulled it out. Georgia was a 31-year-old performance artist from Greece, and she was actually used to, in a European sense, having these assemblies where people actually sat down and talked. And what happened on August 2nd was she went out to, uh, there was supposed to be kind of a, the prelims to having the, uh, the Wall Street uh, uh, the takeover on September 17th. And when she got there, she said she noticed that there was kind of people at the top, and, you know, speaking with the mics, like me, and they were going to, and they had kind of an agenda. And they were telling the people in front, "This is what we're going to do, and how we're going to set it up." And from her own past experience in kind of real democracy, she jumped up and seized the uh, the mic. Um, and uh, someone said she was disruptive, hysterical, and tactical. A volunteer with Occupy Wall Street said she uh, said she said, "This is not a general assembly. You're not here to speak at people, but to have a conversation." And so what they did was they broke into what they refer to as horizontal. So people actually began dialoguing. And that was the end of kind of we have leaders here, you know, take me to your leader. Well, instead, that kind of evaporated. And, but much to the frustration of kind of mainstream uh, uh, you know, media and politicians. Uh, what's the response of authorities? Well, it's important to notice here it's, it's varied from place to place. Uh, and and even from day to day again among uh, various people, the Obama administration Republicans don't quite know what to do with it. Uh, in uh, you see kind of varied responses across the country. I think Maine municipalities have just simply hoped that it'll die of attrition in Canada and to some extent the weather uh, the winter is going to assist them in that. Um, and one of the main tactics though that all, Progressive movements face in uh, North America and the Western world generally is that the media immediately delegitimizes them. You know, so we allow you free speech; it's just that we don't allow you to be taken seriously, <laughs> right? So, you know, as soon as you say something, it's you know, we we just kind of write you off as being kind of uh, unimportant. So, go away and talk, but you know, we won't pay attention. You won't change anything. Um. Some quotes here. Interesting one here actually from Ron Paul, who's kind of an uh, adventuresome libertarian uh, congressman. He actually has referred to it as a legitimate effort, but that's uh, not the Republican view of it by and large. And uh, President Obama has for the most part attempted to try to co-opt it. He doesn't want to he, – he, he's hoping that he can win an election if he keeps these people on side. What we know is actually most people polled in the Occupy movement – don't particularly care for the Republicans or Democrats. And, in fact, some people have talked about this could be the spur to creating a third party in the United States. Uh, so what's its future? Uh, one of the things it's done really well is it's engaged in street theater and, and spectacle. Uh, the slogan, I have to say, the 99% and the 1%, that's, that's absolutely brilliant. You know, I mean, it really sticks in your mind. If you're going to sell a product, you want people to remember it by one of my favorite things to tell people is, I don't know if you've paid attention to the, uh, there's that Nova, Bank of Nova Scotia ad where the people go in to hand back the money. I absolutely hate that ad. I don't like those people at all, but I can't forget it, right? So, I mean, that's what you want. So it's a great slogan. Uh, they have succeeded in changing the the conversation. I think that that's the main focus here. The weakness is in it's becoming in danger of becoming the issue, and Mayor Nenshii, just recently, uh, actually, I'll just quickly read his quote here. The protesters need to understand that they've lost the thread; they've completely lost the plot. Making this about the tents instead of about the issues they're talking about, they're completely lost any ability to influence people. And I think there is that that problem there. So you need to change it. Weakness, just attrition over time. You know, you need to do something else to make the movement uh, grow. Um, we, it's widely supported, as polls have shown, but that's going to decrease because there's a risk of alienating its natural supporters. Uh, and finally, ultimately, as I remember somebody listening to somebody who said, we don't care about the state any longer. We don't care about politicians. We're going to ignore them. Uh, and, uh, you know, but the problem is you can ignore the state, but the state is not going to ignore you. And so ultimately, every movement has to seize control of the state. It has to get hold of the political levers. What are the strengths? I think that broader vision of a better society, of a fairer society, is something that you begin to build a movement around. The systems as a whole are delegitimated. There is very few people who really believe that capitalism actually works the way that mainstream economists and politicians want to tell you. It doesn't work. And people now have experienced that. And they don't believe their political systems are there to support them. A strength is also also youth. Okay, Youth become ultimately the basis of any kind of movement if it's going to survive. And finally, what should be the future uh, of the movement? As someone said the other day, uh, listening to them, they were saying, well, maybe we need to think now that we've got our message across in some ways, we've, we don't need to occupy spaces any longer. Now we need to begin the process of really occupying minds to get people to rethink in creative ways the kind of world we want to create. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much, Trevor. I apologize for the...